Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Nephi Craig is a White Mountain Apache who is interested in the development and preservation of Native American foodways. He's the founder of the Native American Culinary Association and was featured in a recent documentary called Gather, which centers around the indigenous food sovereignty movement. Over the past 18 years, Chef Craig has cooked throughout the United States as well as in London, Germany, Brazil, and Japan. He is the executive chef of Café Gajot on the White Mountain Apache Reservation in White River, Arizona, and works in addiction recovery and wellness in his community as well. I reached out to Nephi after I saw the documentary to learn a little bit more about how he's approaching food sovereignty and the obstacles that Native communities face in regaining their food culture. He also shared a little bit about his youth and professional journey, as well as his perspective on the lasting effects of colonial violence on indigenous peoples. To hear more from Nephi, check out the film Gather and uh, the book Letters to a Young Farmer, to which he contributed, available, I believe, both available on Amazon. Thank you for listening. All right, I'm joined by Chef Nephi Craig. Chef, how are you, man? I'm doing great. It's uh, Saturday afternoon. It's relaxing. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you joining me on a Saturday. I know we had some trouble connecting. It sounds like uh, you're equally as busy as I am, but definitely appreciate your time. Yeah, glad to be here. Cool. So uh, for the for the listeners, I learned about you recently when I watched a movie called Gather, and you were featured pretty prominently um, the, the film was all about Native American food traditions and food sovereignty, and they kind of went through several indigenous peoples who were trying to reconnect to um, to their culture in that way. And you were one of them, and I was just fascinated by your story and what you're doing out there in, uh, in Arizona. And uh, so can you kind of tell me about where you're located and uh, who your people are and sort of just your, your background? Well, I, I'm I'm coming to you from out in uh, northeastern Arizona. It's um, I, I live and work on the White Mountain Apache Tribe, and um, uh, one of the many terms for it is uh, Western Apacheria, or you could say that our our, our um, we're grouped in as Western Apaches. There's uh, the Yavapai Apaches, the Tonto Apaches, the San Carlos Apaches, and then us, the White Mountain Apaches. And um, we've been in this territory and, you know, down a little bit down into Mexico, too, in the Sonoran Desert. But we've been in our mountains, specifically my group and my clan families, uh, you know, thousands of years that we can trace back. Um, and so we've uh, we've seen many changes and endured a lot of struggle, uh, centuries of raiding and warfare that were known and documented about uh, from an anthropological standpoint. Uh, culturally, we uh, haven't been really displaced. We've had major interruptions culturally because of colonization and the establishment of the United States of America. Um, but from a um, um, from a community member standpoint, we're we're still here in our mountains where we've always been, 
as long as we can remember. So um, it's uh, it's pretty neat. I've been cooking professionally 23 years, and I got into it just simply for the, I guess, like the uh, the the fascination of youth with cooking food that I always had since I was a kid. So it it really opened up the world to me. It took me on a journey that I wouldn't ever anticipate, and um, it has really shaped my identity. Yeah, that's that's really cool. First of all, that you are on your your native homeland and that you weren't displaced. I think most native peoples in uh, on this continent have been moved around, and their oral traditions have been kind of disrupted a little bit more and things like that. And so, I can imagine that's a pretty cool you know, deep connection to know how long you've been there and your people. When it comes to your food culture, was your family in touch with, with your traditions and things growing up? What was your diet like? The, uh, um, the, the monster of colonialism has infiltrated every aspect of our lives. So from, from a food consumption and food exposure standpoint, um, my, it, pretty much almost like a uh, typical American kid in poverty. You know what I mean? Um, In the eighties, because I was born in 1980 and uh, both of my parents were born in the fifties, 1950 and 52. So they came into um, the world in a time when it was very volatile and very dangerous to, uh, you know, be indigenous. Um, It was even more so dangerous in the thirties, forties, fifties, in the uh, 40s, 30s, 20s for my grandparents. So um, a lot of changes uh, impacted our lives and that definitely included foodways. I remember having the United States um, uh, commodity food that we used to get, the commodity food program. Government cheese. Yeah. uh Yeah, you hear about that a lot. You hear about that a lot all over Native America. Um, You know, the, the reason I say almost like typical American fare is because that was what is shipped to us. You see the the process of colonization, uh, even though we're fortunate to be in our ancestral landscapes, we're still psychologically and spiritually displaced, you know, disconnected from foodways. Um, You see, dependency was created and inserted like a microchip into our culture. That's the way I see it. Um, So like the food rations, the commodity foods that I'm talking about. Uh, those actually started off as military food rations for the prison camps, which are reservations. And it morphed into a more politically correct labeling, like the commodity food system. And, um, you know, but so generations of us, not just here in Arizona, but across the United States, um, became dependent and reliant on those rations. Because if we went hunting or practice tradition or ceremony, we could go, we could get get penalized, go to jail, get killed. Some, you know, some parts of the Dakotas in the Midwest, you could get killed, get hung, you know, no one would care. Um, so there's a lot of uh, um, recent laws and policies that just changed. For example, it was illegal for um, us as Apaches to gather in ceremony all the way up to like 1972. And so it's very recent that these changes have impacted us. And uh, food is one of those critical elements. So um, I feel like um, it was kind of, but it was a mixture, you know what I mean? We still had connection to some uh, native foods, wild foods, traditional stuff. My parents grew a garden out of necessity. And um, uh, 
Um, so it, it's it's not as nostalgic and romantic as it might sound. Being an indigenous chef, you really kind of cut the filter through all the the quagmire. You know what I mean? To find connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How old were you when you started cooking? Man, I um I've always enjoyed it, but, but I remember like I think my earliest favorite food memories are from preschool. Uh, my preschool teacher, we were baking muffins, and she told us that cooking is like art and science. So that that really uh, stood stayed with me, and I like to use that reference that a lot because it really is. Um, I would eventually learn what she meant and really begin to um, um, expand that for myself. So it's just been kind of been there all my life. Um, and so we started cooking professionally right when I turned 18, when I got out of high school. I uh, decided to go to a culinary school and I was working uh, working to, working at night in a restaurant and going to school in the daytime. Okay. Wow. On the reservation? No, in Scottsdale, Arizona. Okay. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the film, there was um, some reference to some trouble in your earlier life. Uh, when we spoke before, you said you'd be okay talking about that. What was going on there? Um, I, I only ask because I think the the youth on reservations um, have a lot of of obstacles to get past in order to become successful. So um, I'm interested in your story and what you went through growing up. Uh, well, I think you know adolescence is tough no matter what. You know what I mean? Then you add race and societal complexities and all the stuff you're unaware of as a kid, but you feel it. You know. You, you don't know how to really pinpoint microaggressions when you're coming up. You don't really know how to um, pinpoint and describe and articulate social injustice and the complexities of racism and prejudice in America. You're just like growing up. Sometimes you understand it. Sometimes you can feel it and point it out and avoid it. Other times you're just so deep in the machine that you don't even know it's happening, but it's affecting you. You know what I mean? Mm. So like, um, I feel like my, my story is, um, um, pretty common. I feel like there's a lot of other professionals that have um, made it through. A lot of us didn't. Um, but I grew up um, here on the White Mountain Apache tribe. Uh, skateboarding came into my life when I was like seven or eight years old. And Me that too. was my window to the world. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, it, it That was my window to the world, the early Thrasher magazines and um, um, skateboarding mags that were around back then. Uh, then seeing like first um, the first skateboarding videos like uh, 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 like public domain, you know, some of the old school H Street movie videos, the Alva videos. That was like that was that was hardcore. Like and yeah. we, we, we got skateboards. And so seeing like California, Chicago, L.A., New York in magazines doing the same stuff we were doing and, and outside on the sidewalk was cool. You know, um, that was really one of my biggest creative inspirations and still is today i still i still ride when i can okay um but uh um but also getting into drugs and alcohol real early um you know growing up on the res it's all around you uh mainly when the 80s was mainly alcohol um it's much tougher now with like meth and other opiates and other street drugs man that are out there but um i didn't know that growing up in dysfunction was nor not normal you know uh, you just kind of see it all around you and you just kind of just deal with it. And I was like, oh, so-and-so died or there's a car wreck or someone got kicked out of their house. It's just like, oh, that's just how it is. Um, but it would get pretty heavy and, you know, um, 
I just kind of just kept using and, you know, it was just, it, it kind of the whole skateboarding culture, punk rock culture, got into hip hop, um, uh, just kind of street culture. I gravitated towards that, like hip hop culture because it, it, it wasn't white. You know what I mean? It, it, <laughs> It was it was yeah. something I identified with. I couldn't say that then. I didn't know how to articulate that. But what I was feeling was the commonality of oppression, the the determination that comes across in the music, and the creativity to do something to make something out of nothing, right? And by any means necessary. And even though there's all these obstacles against you, so that, that's what I I know now as a 41 year old man. That's what I was connecting with as a kid. And I still dig it. Um, I still like punk rock and all that stuff too, but um, I kind of bought into those cultures a little bit too much. Um, mm. But so, um, you know, the, the substance abuse and, and uh, would become, you know, full-blown dependency by the time I'm, you know, teenager, 18, 19, by the time I'm a young adult. And then you're going into that kitchen culture, which is, uh, mm-hmm. they get wild. Yeah, man. And I didn't know that. You know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't know. And, from all the idealism that I saw in the culinary school realm, like the, it's just all this talks about, talk about excellence and world cuisine to me, man, all that stuff was new, completely new. The way, the way non-natives looked at classical cuisine and high highlighted and elevated cooks and chefs. It's not like that where I'm from. You know what I mean? Food is something real humble. Food is something we share. Food is something that brings us together. And um, you know, it's something special. It doesn't divide and, determine who what class you are in you know what I mean so I kind of I I really did go into the food industry very ignorant to how the culture was um and um but I fit right in you know I was already I was already (laughs) rowdy and you know but I love to cook so I I think I wanted to learn the art of cooking more than I wanted to party so I just never gave up you know cool yeah and um you said classical cooking. What what kind of stuff were you learning to cook there at school? Uh, well, it's it was a typical uh, culinary school curriculum, just classical French cuisine, the the history of European gastronomy, uh, you know, classical techniques. There was some, you know, they try to give you some exposure to other world cuisines. Uh, what I remember from culinary school is them saying that there was uh, three three mother cuisines in the world. Um, it was Asian cuisine, Italian cuisine and French cuisine was at the top. And, you know, that's kind of, it's, it's a really closed minded statement to look at world gastronomy, right? It's like, so if we were going to categorize, they would say those are the three major cuisines that influence the world. And, you know, little did I know that the, um, indigenous foods or indigenous cuisines of the Americas was um has changed the way the world cooks you know has influenced all of the cuisines around the world in very very profound ways so you know i didn't know that as a kid so to me see like like you can see i'm got my my wu-tang sweater on you know what i mean i've always been into it since i first heard it and um i always like kung fu flicks too in the 80s because my my uncle and white river used to have nunchucks and shit you know (laughs) (laughs) but um so i was kind of into that too and when I, when I came across cooking, um, the professional cooking, they, they were using the terms like master chef or becoming a master. And the only other places I had heard that was in like dancing, you know, painting, carpentry, uh, art, um, and Kung Fu, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
that was the only other places and i was like cool man you can become a master like this my mind is like man what does that mean to me it's like to me then and now man like i got to give my life to this you know what i mean yeah and and you've got that kind of rock star side of it too you know you can be like bourdain and still well, be considered a master well well this was before all of that you know what i mean like oh, yeah. 1990 and 1998 kitchen confidential was just probably in the finishing stages of being published cuz it came out in 99 okay and in 98 and my high school years there was no such thing as food network my only exposure to the world of chefs was on the discovery channel that show great chefs of the world huh so so now you're trained um you're living in in Scottsdale still no no i've um i i left um see i was raised in white river on the apache reservation my mo- my mom is white mount apache and my dad is navajo from okay. the eastern part of the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. So um from 1980 to 90 I was raised on the in Apache land and then in 1990 to 98 um we moved up to Navajo land. So I was raised on both reservations where I'm from. And um uh in 98 after I graduated high school that's when I decided to go to cooking school not knowing what it was like. I just kind of said screw it. <laughs> yeah. Mhm. So I want to get into your kind of renaissance of your cooking and getting back into your native food ways. So tell me about your approach and what you're doing to uh, regain your food sovereignty. Uh man, um the for me I've been doing this this native food thing since like since I started in culinary school. I okay. I wanted to I wanted to get proficient in french cooking cuz all the messages i was getting from other chefs uh, instructors or real chefs was that that was the pinnacle of cuisine then in the late 90s that if you were going to be successful you had to go into fine dining maybe go to france maybe go to germany and train um but that's changed today but so but i also ultimately knew i wanted to do something cool with native foods and that's why i say when i went in this journey began with this life i didn't know how it would end it's just a big unknown so i've been doing this for a long time and uh the food sovereignty term is relatively recent um okay. it's like you know i mean like for me anyway as a practitioner it's probably like the last 15 years it's been in my life but i've been doing food sovereignty work the whole time in a sense so like to outsiders that are just kind of getting turned on to it or tuned into it it seems very like i said kind of romantic and uh rebellious and peaceful and spiritual and holistic yeah it has those characteristics but it's also a ton of hard work um and so what what i'm doing with to try to reclaim my food traditions is to continue to just be about it be connected to my community um I I take my work seriously as a chef but not too seriously, you know what I mean? I uh, I know that I'm not like European chefs in at all. I I don't sometimes I don't even know where I fit in, you know what I mean? But I I I I love this work. I dig it. And so I I try to do my best to support other farmers in the community. Um my work right now is in um uh drug and alcohol treatment. Um oh. I'm a I'm a advanced relapse prevention specialist and a behavioral health tech, something which I never thought I'd become, you know what I mean? And so I'm opening up a, a cafe with our treatment center in the town of White River 
because all these years of work and travel internationally and in the Americas, seeing the shape-shifting nature of colonialism and colonial violence, I know that it's much deeper than just um, cooking. It's it's a spiritual malady that it it we heal from it one person at a time. There's a lot of grandiosity and elitism in food sovereignty work and food circles and sustainability movements. There's a lot of privilege swirling around, and that's the hard truth. Um, people of color and the BIPOC community that are in the depths of oppression that are um, that are suffering because of oppression, like I said, are not talking don't have the luxury of understanding or dealing or even delving into it. So I try to keep it as tactile as I can without getting too grandiose, um, without getting too carried away at the romance of food sovereignty work. Um, I don't consider myself a food activist. People, People label me as that, but it's not that. It's much more, it's more intimate, man. So I do my best to try to encourage people just to start cooking. You know what I mean? Like that's the first step. And my, my cooking style has changed over time to where I used to be real technical in my, my cooking style. And I still can do that. But if I'm going to try to get someone to fall in love with cooking, like I have, I have to make it look like they can do it. You know what I mean? I have to make it look fun. I have to make it look delicious. I have to make it look simple. Um, so that's how I try to, that's kind of my, where, how I evolved as a chef is the um, biopsychosocial behavioral health element of group dynamics in the kitchen, uh, the skills that we hold on to when we learn to cook and the relationship we build with food. And so I feel like that relationship we build with food can translate into farming, cooking, agriculture, water, you know, aquaponics, animal husbandry, whatever it might be, as long as we have that connection with the food and the landscape, you know, I feel like that's the most important thing. That's what I try to talk about and instill beyond the fancy stuff. You know what I mean? Well, that's why I think it's so effective because of the the connections that you just mentioned to social and economic circles far beyond just the food and, and what you can do for a community in terms of learning to grow their own food. And anyways, um, in the film, you were starting a cafe that was essentially a, a repurposed gas station, which was really cool because you were saying like kids grow up eating from this gas station, you know, and you guys went in there and, and completely repurposed it and uh, turned it into a native food cafe. Is that still going on? I know the film was a few years ago. Yeah. The, um, uh, when you get to meet us in the film, uh, we were just at the beginning of our soft opening activities. And literally after that was filmed about three months later, we had to shut down because the, uh, the the governor of Arizona and the reservation issued our um, shelter in place and quarantine warnings because the numbers were just going so fast. So we shut down and we stayed shuttered for a year and a half. And we're actually just ramping up the past couple of weeks to open again, start serving this week. I'm glad to hear that, but man, what a shame. Yeah. Um, so when you some of the food you were cooking in that film was pretty creative stuff and using kind of wild foods. And um, where do you come up with this stuff? Are you finding old recipes? Are you talking to elders? Are you just getting creative? You know, how are you building this, this repertoire? Um, a lot, a lot of, a lot of the work that, that I've done comes um, 
uh, it, it's a lot of experience and curiosity. You know, I try to keep that um, um, hungry or curious side of me that comes from my youth. And, and so like talking to other people that forage, um, my knowledge is just kind of a lot of lived experience and other independent research. So botany books, survival guides, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's the, the indigenous knowledge for an indigenous person to find is really scattered. Um, it's like, you know, in the 1800s and 1700s, there were a series of psychological, spiritual atomic bombs dropped all over North America. And it just blew all this cultural information to smithereens and it landed wherever it landed. And now we're trying to pick up the pieces, you know, 500 yeah. years later. And so yeah, it's a tall order. Yeah, man, there, there's there. So it's really daunting sometimes when you think of how intact um, other cuisines are like uh, French or Asian, Japanese, Korean cuisines or, you know, um, uh, Italian cuisines, those kind of uh, more notable ones. So attempting to try to reconstruct something is really doing my best, at least for me as one person to follow my cultural intuition to kind of think back and um, I think of the, I try to remember the sentiment of my mom and my dad and my relatives. I think of the, the humor in my family and in my home. I also think of like the heartbreak and what we were eating at certain times in our lives and also how we would respond to white people food. You know what I mean? Um, Cause it's, it's, it's difficult but it's not impossible. Um, there's a lot of great scholarly academic work by native professionals um, that's out there that predates this popularity of native foods right now. Mm. Um, there's numerous professionals that have written really, uh, really strong academic pieces on indigenous agriculture, on indigenous water rights, on protecting the buffalo, on um, protecting the salmon, on protecting ecologies and political rights. So that's kind of the, uh, you have to like piece it together. You know what I mean? And then you can easily go and find some, some white dudes, you know, ethnobotany book and survival guide and get a bunch of wild foods to be inspired by, you know? <laughs> so can you give me an example of some of the, the dishes that you've either recreated or created, um, you know, through that lens? Yeah, man. I, um, I, I like to, when it comes to native foods, I felt there's some, there's like a, a one way that's really useful to help uh, me, my family and community kind of uh, understand it because in native communities, there's, there's traditional, when you say traditional native American foods, we think fry bread, gravy, stews, soups, um, those kind of things that have um, that involve like the commodity food generation, the military food ration generation. And so those, those have cultural value for sure. They have, uh, they have a, they've had a negative impact on our public health, but they're also very valuable from a cultural um, nostalgic standpoint, memories, tenacity, and you know sticking together. But there's also so defining in my community, at least for my small corner of the the town or the community, is like traditional foods are what we recognize, what we grew up with, our grandparents grew up with, and then indigenous foods are foods of the Americas. So okay. when you're only looking through when you're only looking through a lens of traditional foods, the the food selection or repertoire is very small and very kind of in common with other native tribes. 
but when you look at indigenous food, it opens up to include chocolate, cherries, vanilla, sunchokes, all corn, all beans, all squash, a whole wide range of um, flora and fauna become accessible to you as a native person. So um, that's kind of how um, uh, we try to define it in our community so that we can continue the work because it's, it's, it's such a huge topic, man. And they're just trying to keep it simple. You know, one of the dishes that um, I really like that I feel might be an original is I like to do this uh, mixture of seeds. Um, it's just called a Western Apache seed mix. And I pulverize it into a flour and mix it with uh, wheat flour and make like these little, little tiny like donuts. Remember those Dunkin' Donut holes? Yeah. <laughs> like hush puppies, you know what I mean? Okay. Kind of like that, man. But it's a fun play. It's really, really nutrient dense, protein packed. And I drizzle with, uh, I just drop them in, in oil and fry them and, you know, cut, toss them with agave and chili. And they're fun, tasty, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But there's a lot of other dishes along the way that are inspired by my, my classical French training roots too. Um, I really, I really like the technical, complicated nature of, of fine dining style cooking, but I also like the really homey style, you know, nurture the soul and belly kind of stuff, you know? Do you, are you working on recipe books or anything like that? Do you document this stuff? Uh, I've, for me personally, man, I've got a complicated relationship with cookbooks. Everybody always asks me if I'm going to write one. I want to, I, I think it's great. I have all, I have a massive collection of cookbooks, but it's something about the it's something about the um it's something about the appetite of the american public that is kind of discomforting you know what i mean like like they just they're so hungry for new trendy knowledge new new this new that you know uh, the, the history of cuisine in america ethnic you know quote unquote ethnic cuisines have always come and go as fads and fashion and trends and the same is you know somewhat true with native foods i remember back in 2003 there was this big first wave that i witnessed with native foods popularity uh, coming to popularity then it died down you know the recession hit and then it starts picking up slowly again and you know i'm, I'm a part of making that that wave kind of gain momentum with naca the native american culinary association but so I want to write a book. I don't know if I will. I, I just, I'm aware of like um, internal review boards, uh, cultural intellectual property, uh, repatriation of sacred objects and foods are sacred objects. You know what I mean? I don't want to see, I don't want to, I don't want to see people disrespecting sacred foods. You know what I mean? And I don't know. I know what's sacred to me and my, my, my people, but I don't know what's sacred to the completely sacred to other tribes. And yeah. you know what I mean? I guess I'm just coming at it from, you know, like there's no, so that, so that the next generation doesn't have to, they can build on what you've started. Yeah. Well, well, it, you know, it's the, there, there's, there's power structures all around us, you know, and they influence our reality. They're the reason we're the end of the supply chain. They're the reason we're the food deserts we are. Or the reason that we have all these uh, public health epidemics and now a pandemic, you know what I mean? So it's very complicated, you know, it's very complicated. So like, as you can see, man, that's why it's like to focus on the food, let people connect one person at a time and let them make their own decisions. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems to me 
I read an article highlighting the ways in which reservations have been essentially legislated out of the rest of the economy. Um, and this was a Forbes article, so they were coming at it from an economic point of view, but they were saying one of the major things uh, that I didn't know is that most land is held in, um, you know, communally, and that there's very little, on, on most reservations, there's very little individual property ownership, and it keeps people from, it kind of gets rid of the incentive uh, to to work these lands. It keeps people from being able to start small businesses or build generational wealth and things like that. And so it seems to me some of the most effective ways to combat the structure that you're you're talking about and that you're you're fighting against is um, how do we get rid of some of these laws that are essentially keeping us from from being able to you know to overcome or to to build that wealth and and that community knowledge it's just like it's such a complex structure yeah it, it really is um, you know um, uh, as uh, American citizens have their regular um, census number and social security number, you know, and, you know, ours as Native Americans is kept in the Department of the Interior. You know, we're, we're still kept in the War Department. Mm. You know what I mean? And the, the land, uh, the reservation land, it's, uh, it's held in federal, it's tr- federal trust land. And all the things you said are correct. And I think it's all reservations, if I'm correct, um, that are that way. And so it's, it, it's, it's, the, um, it's the illusion of sovereignty. It's the illusion of freedom, and it's uh, you know mimicking colonial powers when we have these governmental structures that we recreate for ourselves. So it's really deep, man. It's really deep. Well, this is heavy stuff. Let's let's move back to yeah. food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, man, I, for real. Yeah, I did want to know, uh, in terms of your now that you're ramping back up with the cafe, are you able to source a lot of your produce and meat locally, and um, or are you having to get that elsewhere? Uh, just like any other typical spot, you know, it, we, we do, we have to source from vendors because, you know, the, the FDA is the food police, you know what I mean? They're, they determine what goes in and out and what we can use and what we can't. Um, since we're a, an agency that deals with mental health and we, there's rules we got to follow too, but we do have our tribal sovereignty and tribal resources from the, the farm you see and gather. They're still they're still operating, so we get greens and vegetables from them, um, and then we we hope one of the main goals of the cafe is to really hopefully stimulate and help revitalize traditional markets, um, because there's there's the American economy right, then there's our cultural Apache economy that's different. It's not the American dollar. It's based on other things, you know, people and water, different values, and it's this. Um, kind of this exchange of being there for each other, helping each other out, you know? Mm-hmm. And that includes far, uh, foraging, gather food, gathering foods, hunting and distributing foods, you know? So, and the arts that go with it, the baskets, the, the baskets, the weaving, the leather work, the arts and crafts, those are almost all food vessels. So we hope that maybe the cafe can stimulate some of that and we can, you know, purchase from people you know, create new relationships so that it can enhance the practices, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good thing to, to aim for. Um, that landscape you mentioned, you know, you, you all have been there for a long time and you mentioned some of the native foods that you have to, um, 
to source from in terms of wildlife. I know that um, there's like world-class elk hunting in that part of Arizona. Is that something that, um, do you guys ever have the chance to get out and hunt for your meat? Um, yeah, well the trophy elk hunts, uh, I used to actually, um, be the chef for those camps. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, wait, they go, there's two camps, one on the, one on the, um, on the West end of the res down in the lower elevation and one way up high in the mountains around 10,000 feet at the, uh, near the ski resort where I was the chef at. Okay. And so the, the hotel I was working there, so the hunters would come and, you know, they pay like, uh, like 25 grand a tag. And I think they get like, you know, 30 hunters per camp and they have a set, a set of camps, you know, and the hunters, they just, they just go with, it's like it says, trophy elk hunt. It's not misleading. Sometimes they take the, the meat with them. Other times they, they donate it to, you know, people on the res. Wow. Um, so that's just what I've seen. Um, but we do have a lot of, uh, um, wildlife in, in our, in our environment. And again, man, I, you know, not trying to be trying to stay away from as many saviorism, you know, complexes as I can, because I, I ain't nobody's savior. You know what I mean? I, food saved my life. You know what I mean? Like it, it, I'm just trying to do my part in a much more complicated web of recovery. And I'm just like one strand. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, switching gears a little bit, you mentioned, and I, I neglected to ask you about this earlier, the Native American Culinary Association. You're, uh, you were involved in getting that started, right? Yeah, I started. Um, yeah, I was, I, I, um, I started, it was, it, it was a concept that came out of culinary school because like I said, I was learning all these other world cuisines, but they weren't talking nothing about natives. Only time they talked about the Americas was chocolate and chilies and tomatoes, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? In, in Mesoamerica. And my culinary school was on a reservation. You know what I mean? They didn't, they never mentioned the intricate and expert, you know, um, agricultural sciences that the whole common Akhmalotum developed to run the, the canals that feed Phoenix, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't talk about it. All they wanted maybe talked about was the obesity, the trashy houses and the fry bread on uh, the res there by the school, you know? So, um, like, but as, like I was saying, I, I figured I'm going to be doing this. I decided I'm going to do this for the rest of my life and maybe someday become a master. You know what I mean? And, and, um, so I said, I, I remember I wanted to find a native chef to work for. Uh, I wanted to train with a native chef that could, you know, so I could learn it and understand it, but the, I couldn't find any around me. I couldn't find any native chefs. I would find, um, you know, Southwestern style restaurants or Southwestern inspired cuisine or just stupid stuff like that. You know, like French inspired Southwestern cuisine or regional American cuisine, but they're using all indigenous ingredients. You know what I mean? Um, But I decided like, well, if I'm going to be doing this for a long ass time, I'm going to go ahead and start this so that in 10, 20, 15 years, I'll be a chef myself. And then, we can learn from each other's then. And so that's kind of how it started. And it's always been to support emerging talent, uh, to be a network of uh, support and encouragement. Um, it's never been an official like 501c3. It's never, I've never wanted it to exist in that political realm where we're dependent on those resources. I'd rather um, all the way up until like 2015, it was, um, really kind of just propelled by people that believed in it 
and a lot of the figures that um um you know there's a lot of name chefs that know about it and that had come to our early events uh, our large events so it's somewhat dormant now um you know still very much uh, in the minds and hearts of other native cooks and chefs but you know not as active as it was uh we i think we i think we set out to grow the culture and i think we we did you know what i mean i say that respectfully and humbly to all my colleagues you know I mean? <laughs> have you noticed have you been able to connect with um indigenous people around the continent or is most of this community kind of focused in the southwest my uh uh it the people that came to our early conferences are from all over turtle island um all over uh, north america and even into like oaxaca and mexico um i think the deeper i got into my work the more it became regional and micro regional you know what i mean and when i was in my in my mid-20s I definitely wanted to save the world. You know what I mean? I definitely had that saviorism complex of educating the world. Uh, there was a moment when I was in an airport in Germany and I was sitting in a, in one of those, you know, bars or restaurants in the terminals. And there was a American uh, college game on the TV. And I was sitting there and I just heard it in the background. It said, here we are at such and such stadium. We're, we're, uh, we're, let, we're, we're only at, uh, we're not even at half capacity. We're at four, about probably about 44,000 uh, people in a stadium that's built for 200,000. Wow. And I looked up because the number 44,000 stood out to me. And, and I looked up that that stadium was very, very sparse. But it, the reason that number stood out to me is because there's like 46,000 white Mount Apaches. You know what I mean? Me. And so that meant that visual meant there wasn't even enough for us to fill a, a football stadium. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, shit, like it just kind of made this sense of urgency. But I would all ultimately kind of come to realize that, you know, it, trying to educate the world about my cuisine is 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 very uh, performative and misinformed um, because the world is the world or the colonial monster has already demonstrated they could care less about us. You know what I mean? They've already demonstrated that they're willing to eradicate and kill all native peoples to get the land, water, and resources. And any other sharing of knowledge or information will just be taken to, to continue that legacy. You know what I mean? That's a stark hard realization that, you know, it's real. Some people may agree with it, some people won't. But for one native person like me that's been all over the world and cooked in all kinds of places, that's that's the way I feel, you know? So this is pretty hardcore, but that's how I see it. Well, yeah, I, I certainly can't blame you for your perspective, not having had your experience. Um, but it's hard for me to see it that way. I would think that I would I would think that it would be really welcomed. That I would like to think that we're at a t point and place in history where, you know, you can begin to to rebuild and proliferate that kind of indigenous knowledge, and that it would be well received. But maybe I'm being naive. <laughs> yeah. It I think it's, you know, just again, as, as just one person, it's like, for me, I'd rather circulate it at home where the meaning, where it's meaningful and can be carried on. That That's kind of what I was getting at, I guess. You know what I mean? Um, it, we can still be visible in the world and think globally, but act locally. Um, the the uh, um, concepts and realities that we're dealing with as indigenous people are global. The oppression and health disparities we face as white Mount Apaches 
is going to be the same down in Panama, down in Brazil, in Ecuador, in Chiapas, in you know Uruguay, in Australia, in Africa. You know what I mean? The colonial monster is global. In terms of your besides your cafe, which you said is reopening Cafe Gajot on um, on the reservation, which people can visit right um, starting soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tuesday, man. Okay, hell yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Aside from that, I know that uh, I spoke to Shane Hardy at Stone Barns up in New York, and your name came mm. up. Um, can you tell me about what you did with those guys? Yeah, I, um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of my work got really propelled when I was able to work in a really great French restaurant here in in Scottsdale, Arizona. If Michelin was in the United States back then, it could easily have been two or three stars. And it was called Mary Elaine's of the Phoenician. And that's what gave me the confidence to do the work I do. Um, and it, it's also opened a lot of doors. So um, having that background and going in that trajectory to do native foods with that kind of like credential or training really kind of um, helped me. I was very lucky. You know what I mean? And so um, getting in touch with Stone Barns was a result of my work with native foods and just being a visible character, I guess, in cyberspace. Yeah. Um, but they, they invited me to contribute because uh, I've written a lot of essays. I haven't written a book yet. I've written a lot of essays. I've been in a lot of publications and that kind of stuff. Um, I've done a lot of chef events and you know what I mean? So I'm kind of visible, but Stone Barnes invited me to t- contribute to their book, Letters to a Young Farmer. And I, uh, I gladly and respectfully accepted because I've heard about Stone Barns. I know about the restaurant Blue Hill. I think their efforts and, you know, some of their work with sustainability and farming is really cool, you know? So I went ahead and agreed. And that's how that relationship began. And then they invited me out to their um, uh, first and second um, uh, Young Farmers Conference, where we brought this message that I'm sharing with you of um, the realities of growing up on the res, displacement, public health, and its relationship to landscape and agriculture. And, and this, is, this, this information that, I'm, that we've talked about is vital for the youth to hear it. You know what I mean? Us as adults, we know it's really difficult and it's heavy and we want to just turn it off and change the subject. But if we can you know, reach the youth and show them how important their food justice work is, their advocacy, their intelligence, and their openness to other, um, other uh, racial groups, It'll really, we're, we're setting, we're planting some seeds. You know what I mean? So that's what we did there. We did presentations, cooked, hung out, felt cool for a minute. Then we're back on the res. <laughs> so letters to a young farmer. It's a collection of, of essays from different. Uh, yeah, no, it's, um, um, it's a collection. I can see it on my bookshelf right there, but um, it's a collection of essays from chefs and farmers and activists and, you know, real activists, you know what I mean? And, and, and other things like that. Um, it's pretty cool. I just wrote a short essay on indigenous food sovereignty, uh, kind of like indigenous food sovereignty, but I wrote my essay as if I was writing to the young farmers that you see in that movie, Gather. Um, you know, again, community focused, but universal. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, you told me about it just a few days ago, and I haven't had a chance to, to get my hands on a copy, but um, that sounds really good. Well, cool, man. You've kind of got your hands in a whole bunch of stuff here. I'm, I'm looking forward to the success of your cafe, which is now reopening and hopefully will not get shut down again. Um, any other future plans or just focusing on the restaurant? Oh, man, I just want to continue to be a, um, a healthy-minded parent. 
You know what I mean? I want to be uh, uh, an ethical and um, an ethical and um, disciplined professional uh, dealing with substance abuse. I want to continue to learn uh, more in that field, get more credentialing. You know what I mean? I, I never set out to come home and set up set up a, a restaurant on and at my local drug and alcohol rehab. You know, <laughs> on the res, man. I was thinking New York, Paris, London. You know what I mean? When I was young. But I'm full circle here on the res doing what I do, and, and I love it. I've just been trusting the process and following the foods, and it's changed my life for the better. So I just want to continue to be a good human being, contribute to works like yours whenever I can, and um, just continue the advocacy, but stay grounded, man. You know, cool. eyes focus forward, feet on the ground. I love it. Sounds like they need you, man. I'm glad you're there. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> well, hey, uh, Nephi, I really appreciate your perspective and your time today. And, um, yeah, looking forward to your continued success. Yeah, thank you for having me on and everybody listening. Thank you for um, having an open heart and open mind. Take care there. Stay safe.